Hi, this is Candy Olasala, host of the Empowered Family Caregiver Podcast, where we help family caregivers go from stressed to calm. I honor you being here and recognize that you have a choice how you invest your time. Today's guest is Christy Vecchio, and we are going to be talking about caring for the rare disease child and the reality of being a pioneer in this field. So a little bit more about Christy. She is a full-time wife and instructional day. And by night, she runs a small business, helps support families as they join this new world of desert syndrome and neonatal diabetes, and occasionally posts on her two blogs and runs a store on Shopify with graphic designs for rare diseases and special needs toys. She's also starting a nonprofit called Babies with Diabetes and hopes to one day work with doctors on innovative treatments for children like her own. She loves unicorn books, butterflies, bulletproof coffee, and most importantly, bacon. Welcome <laughs> to our podcast. Thank you. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about this syndrome and a little bit about your caregiving story, and then we'll we'll go from there. So thanks for the introduction, Tandy. I'm uh, honored to be here. Um, so I have uh, two kids. Um, my husband is Dan, and uh, we have two kids. Andy is 13, and Katie is nine, and uh, Andy was born in 2005, and when he was born, we immediately um, knew something was wrong. The doctors knew something was wrong with him. They did not um, allow us to see him um, for about four hours after he was born, um, and for about the first six days, they continued to run just test after test on him. Um, just kind of scratching their heads, uh, knowing that something just didn't add up. Um, he um, was not a technically low birth weight baby, but he was lower birth weight than normal for our um, families. Typical birth weight babies for both my husband and my family are eight or nine pound babies. We have big babies in our families. And um, Andy was six pounds, seven ounces. So that was kind of the first indication. He was full term. So um, even though he was breached and born at 39 weeks, I think it was like 39 weeks in one day. Sorry, it's 13 years. So it's starting to start starting to fade away at this point. <laughs> um, 39 weeks in one day. Um, and so even though he was, you know, just a week shy of full term, he was quite small. For a, for a baby in our family, and um, he had a lot of mottled skin. He um, had trouble keeping his temperature up. He lost more than 5% of his body weight, um, had a really hard time um, latching on and nursing. Um, I remember um, desperately trying to get him to drink just two milliliters of breast milk, um, at a time. And, um, so there was just a lot of little 
things that just didn't add up that, that we were just trying to figure out, you know, just failure to thrive and just, oh, we just couldn't figure out what was wrong. The doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so at day six, they just finally said, okay, take him home. We don't know what's wrong. Take him home, see how he is, take him, you know, bring him back for his two-week checkup, and then we'll go from there. So we brought him home at day um, eight, or we brought him home at day six, and on day seven, he finally latched on, and then he finally started to thrive, started putting on weight, and um, seemed to be okay. He was a colicky baby, um, but he started sleeping through the night around six weeks. And he seemed pretty happy, except for the colic. Um, and then around three months of age, he was what, what I would consider a normal baby. He was around 13 pounds, which would be, you know, normal. Um, and then when he was about four, just before he turned four months old, I went back to work. And he started in a an in-home daycare. And... Um, and then I also, at the same time, um, got very sick with um, kidney stones. So that kind of was a, a perfect storm for um, baby's first cold. So I, that weekend, um, after all of that happened, he had his first cold. So being the first time mom, of course, I took him to the doctor and they said, yes, it's his first cold, first virus. And they talked it up to that. And, um, but then day after day he got worse and um started nursing quite a, a bit and um in fact he was nursing like for 45 minutes at a time every 2 hours and um there was just a lot of little things like he was having really large diapers and um he was um his diapers were just huge diapers, um, almost like, you know, when you put a baby in a, a swimming pool with a regular diaper. And um, just, he was just very sick and just, um, we kept bringing him back to the doctor and they kept telling us, well, you know, he's just got a virus or he just needs to work through it or you're not feeding him enough. Let's set you up with a nutritionist. And then they told us, uh, at one point, he wasn't holding his neck up, and um, so they said that, you know, he had something called muscular torticollis, which is actually something that happens when they go through the vag vaginal birth, and um, he was C-section. So I was like, okay, these doctors are grasping at straws. They're crazy, and I knew that they were just kind of blowing me off, and so I was at the point where I was getting ready to go find a new pediatrician. And um, my, the very next day, this, the day after I had the doctor diagnose him with, with the muscular torticollis was when my husband actually got off work early one and because it was a hot day in August and he went to pick him up at the babysitter and the babysitter said he wouldn't, she had trouble waking him up and he wouldn't take his bottle and his whole body every breath that he took his whole body was just he was it was a whole body breath and it was just horrible like he just he his whole chest like 
his arms and legs were so small that the only part of him that you couldn't that you noticed was his chest. His neck was so small. It was just the only, it, it seemed like all he was was head and chest. And so when my, um, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, at what point was he diagnosed? So this was the day that he was diagnosed. Um, so he was, at this time, he was 18 weeks old. This was August um, 24th, or August 23rd, actually, August 23rd, 2005. My husband came up to the school to find out where to go to the pediatrician's office, and I told him, and he went to the pediatrician, and they rushed into the ER, um, and then once I got to the ER, um, it took about probably an hour and a half to two hours for them to run, you know, a million tests, it seemed like, um, and then I'll never forget it. To this day, um, I, after, you know, it, it felt like one of those ER scenes that they, that you see in those doctors, um, all the doctor shows where there's just, you know, so many people running around and it was very chaotic like that. And all you see is just all of these machines and wires and you don't even, I didn't even see my son. It was just like all these wires because he was so small and this just huge bed. And then all of a sudden it just seemed like there was, everybody was gone. Dan had stepped out for a minute because he was stressed out and he was like, I need to step outside for a minute. And um, everybody had left the room and I was by myself and a doctor came in and, um, pulled off a piece of paper from one of those machines that reads, you know, a report. And um, she just, her back was to me, and I remember her shaking her head and saying, it doesn't make sense. And I said, what doesn't make sense? And she said, his blood sugar is high and his pH is low. He's too young. That doesn't, it's not right. And ironically enough, I had literally just that morning been teaching my my fifth grade class about the endocrine system in fifth grade science. And we had been talking about type 2 diabetes and what the endocrine system does and about blood sugars. And, you know, we had been talking about stories about pH and blood sugar. And so I knew immediately, I was like, oh, well, it's diabetes. And, you know, so naively I said oh it's diabetes that, that's treatable and I thought that's okay that's fine <laughs> I had no clue what what I was about to go through um but you know I guess in some sense and in some regards it was good that you know I kind of felt a little bit of relief um but it took them another um really another day to diagnose him with with diabetes because I guess there's other um, there's other kind of rare things that could cause that um, other than diabetes. I didn't know that at the time, but um, so they, they basically put him on a very, very slow insulin drip because his blood sugar was so high. He was at over 1200. I don't remember the exact number, but he was over 1200 and um, a normal blood sugar for anybody who doesn't know about diabetes, a normal blood sugar for um, is anywhere between 80 and, and 120. 
and he was 10 times the normal blood sugar. He should have been dead. And uh, there's no reason why he should have been alive, but he was. And they were able to very slowly get him off. And um, I'll shorten it for the sake of the podcast. Um, But basically what they ended up diagnosing him at that time was something called idiopathic type 1 diabetes. Because type 1 diabetes normally is diagnosed as, you know, in children. Um, And it is being diagnosed now more in in younger children. But even even nowadays, it is still rare to be be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes below the age of, of 1. Even below the age of 2, it's still pretty rare. But to be diagnosed below the age of six months old, um, and especially back then, they thought, you know, that it's just extremely rare. And so they just called it idiopathic because it's not autoimmune. um, And so it didn't follow the same pattern as type 1 diabetes. So um, we basically went through, you know, this was back when Google was in its infancy and Dan and I went through, um, you know, a year of basically frustrating, frustratingly going through Google and trying to figure out, you know, were there any other babies like him anywhere in the U S anywhere in the world. We felt so alone because we kept asking Google about babies with diabetes and we never could find it. And we kept, Google kept telling us all about gestational diabetes. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want to know. <laughs> and um, so we did eventually, um, in the following year, we, we ended up moving. And when we moved, we found a new doctor. And when we told him our story, um, it just so happened that, that in 2006, um, there was a little girl that um, had come off of insulin in Chicago and then had um, basically told their story in like news and they had published it and um, gone on, you know, news uh, stations and magazines and stuff. So it kind of started spreading and doctors started hearing about it. So Right around the same time that we moved and saw this doctor, the article came out. So we literally told our doctor our story, and like the next month, he read this article and said, wait a minute, we think that your son might have this type of diabetes. So he called us and said, you need to come in and um, let's check him because I think he might have a totally different type of diabetes. So we um, had his blood, had his uh, sent his blood off for a DNA test, and it came back. And sure enough, he did have the um, genetic type of diabetes. And so um, our doctor said, um, he said, I'm, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic, um, and I think that he might be able to come off of insulin. He said, I'm not sure because there are only um, a few that have done it. In fact, we think that Andy might have been about the third patient in the U.S. that came off of insulin. Um, There were 40, 
there were there was a group in the UK that came off in uh, 2004, so the year before Andy was born. There was a group of 49 patients, and 44 out of those 49 were able to come off of insulin totally. And um, so they, we really were the pioneers in this new treatment because we just didn't know. We didn't know if it was going to work. We didn't know how long it would work. If it didn't work, um, we didn't know how much to give him. Um, so we, um, because of all of the unknowns, they ended up admitting him into the hospital in order to take him off of the insulin. Um, so it was kind of a little bit of a freak show um, because it was a teaching hospital and nobody knew about it. And um, so that was January of 2007. And um, he came off of the insulin, went on the, uh, it's a, it's a pill called Gliburide. It's actually been used in the type two diabetes community for over 50 years. So now, like now we're in, you know, it's been over 60 years. So back in the 1950s, it was started as a type two diabetic medication and it's been used for, for that long. And, um, and, but the, you know, it worked. Um, he actually responded to it within a few hours and he was able to come off of insulin within three days. Um, and he, since he took, came off of insulin back in, uh, on January 24th, um, 2007, he's only had like two insulin shots since then. And he's been also now, um, we're at 2003 or sorry, 2018. So he's been off for, uh, almost 12, uh, I can't do math. <laughs> I can't do math in my head. Um, almost, yeah, almost 12 years now. So, um, so he's been off for almost 12 years now. And um, so that was 2007. And then um, where the DEND part comes into play and what DEND stands for is developmental delay epilepsy and neonatal diabetes. So up until this point, we only thought that he had diabetes. We and we had started noticing that he was delayed. I mean, he didn't walk until he was 20 months old, and we started noticing that he was, you know, not meeting certain milestones. But because Dan and I were constantly fighting blood sugars, constantly just, you know, literally keeping him alive, we kept just saying, "Okay, we're we're just trying to keep him alive." <laughs> We didn't pay attention enough to trying to get him to meet milestones. We didn't really work with him enough. We didn't do X, Y, Z. So, you know, we kind of played the parent guilt game of it was our fault, you know. So when he, before he turned to, or right around his second birthday, I took him to the doctor for his, you know, two-year two -year annual checkup. And I talked to the doctor about it. She wasn't that concerned that he wasn't speaking very well. But she said that she would, you know, recommend him for an evaluation just to kind of get him checked. And I felt like she was just kind of like doing it to appease me, but she didn't seem that concerned. And so then that's when we kind of started his evaluations and, and getting him tested in early intervention. And that was the first time that we heard once they started coming out and testing him and, you know, looking at him and, and seeing all of the different things that he was doing. That's the first time we ever heard the term autism. 
and I was just devastated and I I was just taken aback and I was like what autism like what are you talking about and I think you know for a long time we were in denial about the fact that it was autism and we we just kind of talked it up to you know no we just didn't work with him enough we just have two years worth of, you know, we, we were fighting with the diabetes and now we've just got to catch him up. And so it was still probably another year, at least maybe another, I would maybe even say another two years before we even really started to realize that this might be related to the condition. And it, I don't think it really even hit home until um, he was, until we had Katie. And so I'll tell just kind of a shortened version of Katie's story is that um, when I got pregnant with Katie, of course, there was the question of, okay, this is a genetic aspect. Could she have it? And because it was so rare, the doctors were all like, no, she can't have it. Um, it's one in two, one in four hundred thousand to one in five hundred thousand. You don't have it. Your husband doesn't have it. We've tested your DNA. There's no way she can have it. The chances are just, you know, slim to none. Right. right. And so, to my doctor, my pediatrician, just to appease me, said, "Okay, but just on the." Point zero 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 one chance that she does have it. We will test her blood sugar. And I think it was just, again, the doctor's trying to appease me. We will test her blood sugar just to make sure when she's born. We'll, te we'll test her as soon as she's born. And then we'll test her again at two hours. If she is over, if she's in the three digits, we'll test her on a regular basis and we might put her in the NICU just for observation. And I don't think they, I don't think it ever crossed his mind that that would ever be a possibility. I, I think he literally just thought <laughs> that's just like, you know, he literally just thought, yeah, that's just, we're just going to say that just for the, for the sake of it. I knew in my heart, I knew as soon as her, um, as soon as her ultrasound started showing that she was dropping off in um, growth patterns. She, at the end of the second trimester, was at the 98th percentile for growth, and then she started dropping in the third, percent, third trimester. She started dropping in percentile. By the time she was, the day before um, she was born, she actually was measuring less than 10th percentile for growth. Wow. And um, they were like, okay, we need to move your C-section up because your amniotic fluid is down and she's less than 10th percentile. So when she was born, um, as soon as they took her out, they measured her and they said she's six pounds, two ounces. And as soon as they told me that, I knew. Uh, they didn't even have to tell me her blood sugar. I was like, okay, <laughs> she's less than her brother. So I knew exactly. I was like, okay, she's got it. Then when they told me her first blood sugar was 96, I was like, all right, 
does anybody else need to have any more evidence? And they were like, no, she doesn't have it. 96 is normal. I'm like, the doctor told you 50 to 70 is normal and 96 is not normal for a newborn. And they were like, no, she doesn't have it. So then the next blood sugar within two hours was 117. And they still said, no, not necessarily. And this went right. on. For, for so bring us fast forward. Oh, so she, yeah. she was diagnosed with, with it. And so they yeah. with with DEND. Um, and now, you know, of different challenges with, right. you know, with each. Um, what are some of the, you know, you are clearly you know, in science and into the, you know, genetics and, you know, all that stuff. And it came a little easier for you um, as a parent does have, that does kind of geek out stuff, you know. But what about friends that don't? What tips can you give for parents that don't have a background or a um, specialty or even a a light about science and ethics and things. If they're, if they feel there is something wrong with their child, what do you recommend they do? I think the the biggest thing I can say is trust your gut instinct. That that is my. I mean, that is my recommendation for any parent is just trust your gut instinct. It is, it is okay to not, well, let me, let me turn that around to a positive. It's okay to trust your gut and find a new doctor. It's okay. It's okay to go out and search for a different doctor because what your doctor is saying doesn't make sense. Because even if you don't have an, even if you don't have, even if all you have is a high school diploma, even if all you have is an eighth grade, you know, (laughs) diploma, it, your gut instinct is going to tell you enough to know that something is wrong with your baby and you can find somebody in your circle of influence that can help you dissect whatever it is that the doctors are trying to tell you enough that you can say either a this is this makes sense or b it doesn't make sense. And so, you know, while I was able to read what the doctors gave me and say, huh, this doesn't make sense, if somebody else were to, you know, read that and, and not be able to understand it, they could probably, they could very easily go to, you know, a mom or a grandmother or um, a friend or somebody that can, There's got to be somebody in your circle of influence that you can say, you know what, I just went to the doctor. I don't understand what this said. Can you please help me understand this? Because I don't think this 
makes sense and I want you to help me because I want to make sure I'm doing what's right by my baby because it's, it's okay. Doctors don't know everything. And especially when it comes to a rare disease, um, they really don't know everything. So in your experience, how did you communicate with the nurse um, to them understand and educate them and what you were finding in a way that doesn't um, or that that in a way that listened that they were listening I I personally just because I have that background I think I'm able to you know I I actually will print out <laughs> articles and bring them to the doctors and say, these are the articles I found, and this is what I'm understanding. And I, what I will do with them is I will say, okay, this is the article I found. This is what I think it's saying. Can you help me understand how this relates to what I'm seeing in my child? So I, I really try to come at them with questions. And say, can you help me? And can you help me um, understand the the biology of it? Instead of um, instead of telling them what I what I what I think, I try to ask them questions about the the biological mechanisms of it, so that you know, yeah. I'm I'm trying to get them to basically reinforce what I think I already understand, in other words, so that they kind of feel it. I'm, I'm trying to get them to make them think it's their idea. <laughs> if that yes. makes sense. Yeah, um, I mean, not that, not that I'm trying to belittle them in any way, but I try to make sure that I'm understanding it the right way. Um, and I have been proven wrong. Um, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not trying to say that I'm I understand everything because I don't, but I try to come at them with, okay, this is what I found. This is what I think I'm understanding. Please make, sh please help me understand if this will work or will it not? And if it's not, then do you have another idea? Um, yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of times, I mean, just by asking them questions and by approaching them almost as a, um, in, in like a student form, you know, a student-like relationship, I think they appreciate that and, you know, a, appreciate that relationship of, you know, I'm trying to understand what's going on with my child and this is what I see on a daily basis because they don't see the day-to-day. -day. And so I kind of have to tell them what's going on on a day-to-day -day basis, but I also want to understand the the medical aspect of it and and Absolutely. I think they appreciate that that's so important Christy, because you're right the doctor isn't spending you know as you've pointed out you know 24 7 thinking about your child but you and you right. know what's wrong with them you know on an hourly basis and you know as I read your mail you know, you're a busy lady, and you have a lot going on. 
you have a huge mission in the world. And I know you have a supportive husband as well. Yeah. How did you and your husband manage two children with this rare disease and all of the implications that go with and your your business, your career, you know, your daily life. You, how do you, what tips can you share with other families that might be struggling with how to manage that? I think the the biggest thing is making sure that each of you have your own space, your own thing that you do so that you give each other time away from the away from it. <laughs> um, keep your sense of humor. Yeah. Same. Keep your sense of humor. Oh, I love that. Dan is definitely um, the comic relief of, a, of our family <laughs> and we need that. And, you know, he helps to remind me to not, you know, take things so seriously. Um, but, and there, there, there's been times where we forget to, you know, both of us forget to take time. Um, but recently, um, he, he's been, um, for a long time, he did, um, aviation. He did a model airplane building, um, scratch building with model airplanes and he got out of it for a long time and I kept encouraging and encouraging him. And finally, just in the last year, um, he finally got back into it and has been spending two days a week. Um, you know, he goes out and flies for a couple of hours, you know, on Tuesday evenings and then on Sundays for a few hours. So he does that. And then my side business is kind of one of my times. And then I go to Weight Watchers um, once a week. So we each have some time where we, we, we get away from the house to, you know, do something that is not related to the kids, not related to, um, not related to each other, not relate. you know, it's just, it's our own thing. So that we can de-stress. Because if you don't, we'll wind up like so many of the families that are in the same circumstances we're in. They're winding up divorcing or separating. So we don't want to turn into that kind of a situation. So it's yeah. important to keep your sense of humor and, you know, finding things for yourself to do, do things with the kids, you know. Yeah, and we try yeah. to do – we do have um, – we do have access to respite. Um, it's not, we don't take advantage of it as often as, um, we don't, we don't take advantage of it as often as we should probably, but we do have access to it. And so we try to take advantage of it at least, you know, a few times a year um, where we're able to put the kids in camp um, on a couple of Saturdays um, and go to, to lunch um, go to downtown um, and walk around and have, you know, discover a new little restaurant, um, feel like normal people for a few hours at least. So it's, we don't, we don't do it as often as we should, but, but we try to do it at least a couple of times a year. 
Wow. Well, for a couple that that only does that a couple of years, you sure are doing a lot of things. So, <laughs> you know, seriously, that's amazing. And you know, I I I'm divorced, so I'm not a model for keep a marriage um, strong. But <laughs> one of the things that I've learned through my divorce is that when you go into a challenge such as, you know, a special, you know, having special needs children, um, it is, uh, when you go into it saying, there's a way through this together. There is a way through this together. We just have to figure out the best way for right. us. Yes. And I think that's really important, that attitude that no matter what, we are together, and then we'll figure it out together. Yes. And um, I think that your idea and your feedback of having unrelated, you know, activities that aren't to each other that you both have and can do um, is really um, is really cru- crucial. So I, kudos to you for that. Thank you. Um, are there any – well, we could go on and on, but we're, we're nearing the end. Yeah. Are there any questions that I didn't, or anything that you'd like that you hear that you'd like to share now before we get to take five with Tandy round? Um, I think you know just the the idea that as a rare disease caregiver. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what rare disease you have um, or what rare disease your kids have, you know, just know that you are not alone. Um, there are over 7,000 rare diseases, and rare diseases affect over 30, I think I said this right, over 30 million people um, wow. in the U.S. collectively. So um, even though you know, your kid may be rare. I mean, there's only 42 um, DEND kids um, or DEND patients um, in the world. That's my kids. I have two of them. <laughs> wow. we, have, we have two. Um, but, you know, as rare as that is, they're collectively rare is a very large community. And so even though you may feel very, very alone. You can always find somebody who you can go through it with. So advocate for your kids. Find somebody that can be a support system, even if they're not going through exactly the same thing. Somebody out there um, knows what it feels like to feel alone. Um, I went through that Dan and I went through that for way too long. Don't don't be that person. And I feel like that's probably part of my mission is that I'm trying to find those people um, quicker because we went through that for four years, and I don't want any family to go through that for four years because it four years is too long to go um, go through any disease feeling like you're the only person going through this by yourself. Yeah. So that's part of our mission and part of the reason why we're starting the nonprofit um, 
is to not only spread awareness and of course, you know, eventually we hope to start working with some scientists and maybe, who knows, maybe eventually cure it. I don't know, but for right now, we're just in the midst of beginning it and, and starting it. So that's going to be babies with diabetes and, um, we don't know where it'll take us, but for right now, it's just kind of in the beginning stages. So we'll see where it takes wow. us. Wow. You know, that's yeah, so beautiful. So Thank you for sharing that with us because <clears throat> so often the things, sometimes we go through, the things that we go through in life are that we end up, that the things that are end up becoming part of our personal, the things that we become an advocate for. So, you know, I um, honor you for for doing that. For 42 send kids or people in the world. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's just, wow. Wow. So, um, wow. 7,000 rare diseases affecting oh. over 30 million in the United States. Got a big mission, girl. I know. <laughs> Okay. Got to start small, but yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Changing the world one person at a time. That's right. All right. So let's get to the the uh, candy. Okay. Um, my first question: What is your best to reduce caregiver stress? Um, I've already kind of spoken about this a little bit, um, but my best advice would be to find support wherever you can. Um, even if it's yourself allowing you to go out with a friend for a night, or if you don't have a spouse, a friend, <laughs> a friend or a parent or a, um, you know, somebody to allow you to go out somewhere for a night. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you don't have to do this alone. Excellent. What's your best piece of advice to caregivers? Sweet. <laughs> You will have to, uh, you will have all of your child's life to do research. If you do too much, you will get overwhelmed and burn out. So sleep when you can, so you can take care of your child. Remember the old saying, put your own oxygen mask on first. Yes, yes, yes. All right, number three. How have you found your best during what seemed like your worst? Um, I find that when I'm getting depressed or start focusing too much on how difficult things are, um, reaching out to other families and helping someone else shows me how far I've come. Um, I may not know everything. I know far from everything. Uh, I may not know everything, but I know just enough to help someone who is newer um, on their journey. And, um, and so helping them helps me to see um, how far I've come. Wonderful. I love that. How or what, what are you grateful for right now? I am so grateful for the amount of support and growth um, that's happening in my life right now. Um, I really found my purpose. Um, I really feel like I found my purpose and um, it's God's purpose really for my life and it's really propelled me into so many avenues that are blessing me and my family and um, it really I feel like I hope it really benefits other families in our circle um, and so um, just I'm, I'm grateful for all of those people that are in our circle that um, are giving that support to me. 
Beautiful. Beautiful. And lastly, what would you tell someone to keep hope alive? To keep hope alive, I really think the best advice is, um, and I've already said this before, just be your your child's best advocate. Um, It's okay to acknowledge that the doctors don't know everything. Most of the doctors that you see have never even heard of the disease that your child has, um, much less even um, had a child with it. but that doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Um, just because a doctor says nothing can be done doesn't mean it can never be done. It just means it can't be done now. Um, there's still so much we don't understand. Genetic research is in its infancy, and um, neuroscience is in its infancy. Um, but there's new technology, new treatments. Um, every day, new diseases are being discovered, new new genes are being discovered on a daily basis. So it, just because the doctors say they can't do anything, they just mean they can't do anything right now. So push forward, research, find new doctors. As long as you are breathing, you can keep fighting for answers. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, so share with us where people can find you across the internet. So you can find me at babieswithdiabetes.org, and that is um, that's our entire website now. We've integrated um, the shop. We have a shop now with some um, graphic designs, graphic T-shirts, and mugs and. Uh, baby onesies, and we also have, um, we've um, moved our blog over there. The blog is Adventures in Candyland, but it's now integrated in that website. So everything is all under that one, babieswithdiabetes.org now. And Beautiful. Yep. Beautiful. And I will have links to where you can find um, on in the show notes and uh, anywhere this podcast is playing. Christy, I want to thank you so much. You are incredibly busy and your hands full with two kids, a teenager and a tween. Um, <laughs> and I just want to, you know, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. I think it helps give so many parents hope. And um, yeah, I just really appreciate you um, being with us tonight. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Tandy. Of course. So, if you are listening, just head over to the Empowered Family Caregiver page on Facebook where we continue the conversation. And until next time, stay empowered and calm.